Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Well, we love the gospel. Crossway loves the gospel. Redemption Hill Church loves the gospel. And as a small church, we are where Crossway used to be. With hopes, dreams, but it's all centered on Christ. A desire to reach people with the gospel, knowing that our sovereign God is indeed at work drawing people to himself, but he uses people like like you and me to go about the work, to go about God's work, which is a great segue into the book of Acts, which is what I'll be preaching from today. Um, You don't know this, but we spent about a year and a half going through Acts. If you know Acts, it's 28 chapters, and there's a a lot of ground to cover. But Acts is all about the gospel. It's all about what happens when the gospel is preached to a, to a broken and hopeless world. When the gospel is preached, people get saved, churches are planted, there's an outpost in the community, whether there's a message of hope and salvation. You just track that all the way from Acts 1 all the way to Acts, Acts 28. It's a message of salvation by faith alone, through grace alone. This is one of the rhythms of Acts. This is how the kingdom of God advances to the ends of the earth, by reconciling one heart at a time, one heart at a time to our faithful and sovereign God. So with that, if you have your Bible, you can open it up to Acts 13. I'm going to read Acts 13, verses 1 to 12, and then I'll pray and we'll get right in. Now, there's a lot of names (laughs) in this passage. So you might be like, we've got this guy, then that guy, then this guy, and this guy over there on the couch, and that guy's in the kitchen. What's going on here? So I'm going to help sort sort out what's going on. So let's hear God's word for us this morning. Now, there was a church in Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, we've got one guy here, Simeon, who's also called Niger, Lucius, we might say more Lucius, of Cyrene, Manain, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, And Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, I want you to note that, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work in which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. Now, if you stop right there, that's like scene one. Verse five is like scene two. Here we go. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island of Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, who's Bar-Jesus, they just switched names. One was Roman, the other one's Greek. So Elymas, the magician, for that meaning is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, you will not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, 
the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when they saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we need you this morning. We need you right now by the power of the Spirit to instruct our hearts from your sufficient, inerrant, and instructive word. Work in us. Help us to see our great need for more of you, to be led by you, to be sent out by you, for the gospel proclamation, for our good, for the good of the church, but for the honor and glory of your great name. We pray this all in the only name we can pray, in Jesus' name, amen. After I became a Christian, I remember hearing a children's song which teaches kids that they are in the Lord's army. If you grew up in a Christian home, you know that song. I'm not going to sing it because you don't want that either. Um, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I grew up uh, in a pacifist home. I couldn't have a squirt gun, you know, growing up, even in high school. Like, come on, Dad. Uh, So when I heard this song for the first time, as a Christian and as an adult who's a parent, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. My kid in any army? No, thank you. No, thank you. I'll go to war for them before they go to war. (laughs) I got daughters. That's especially the case. Uh, when I first heard the song, I was taken back just simply because of my upbringing, my disposition toward war, what I was taught, etc., etc., etc. But as I've grown older, I understand what is being communicated through that child's song, that children's song. I've come to see what it means to be a Christian at war against an enemy. Quickly, just another theme that just runs through the book of Acts is persecution. Like, they're preaching the gospel here, persecution. They go over there, persecution. He gets stoned over there, persecution. Thrown over in jail over there, more persecution. What do they continue to do, though, in the face of persecution? They preach the gospel. So yes, there is opposition to those who have a message of hope. So I've I've come to know the importance of being equipped to battle against a foe that wants to tear down every Christian foundation in the home and in the church. I've come to see that your relationship with God is being attacked every single day of your life. Like, like, listen, I'm not a fatalist. I'm a realist. Like, that's that's at work right now. There's an adversary for all Christians, and he is at war, which means Christians must fight back. Christians are in a spiritual warfare that has physical ramifications. It's a spiritual warfare that has physical ramifications. Indeed, there is a battle between good and evil, between gospel-advancing proclamations and, and lies sown by deceit and trickery. Or as we see today in Acts 13, magic. So, if I am correct, 
What does it look like for you to fight back? What does it mean for you to be in the Lord's army? In Q, Acts 13. Acts 13, verses 1 to 12, tells about a battle taking place in the war between gospel-advancing proclamation and lies, or those who are trying to tell lies and keep people from the gospel. This passage also tells you what to expect if you want to be a Great Commission church. That is to say, if you are a people about the business of taking the gospel to homes, to schools, to the workplace, government, and every avenue or any avenue in which the Lord places you. This passage also tells the significance of the Holy Spirit to go with you and before you as you go out into your communities to proclaim the gospel in a hostile world. Leading up to this, what I'm going to call just battle in verses 4 to 12, we read how the church concluded that Barnabas and Saul were to go to a people and to be sent out to proclaim the gospel. The first three verses, I think, are very instructive about the scene that takes place between Paul and this magician, Bar-Jesus. Here's a a cast of characters that we read about in Acts 13, verse 1. We have this guy named Barnabas who shows up quite frequently in the New Testament, right? He was not a native of Antioch. He hailed from the island of Cyprus. We have Simeon, who was also called Niger, which means black. Simeon would have been culturally and radically different from Barnabas. Interestingly, some scholars think that this is the same Simeon who carried the cross for Jesus in Mark 15, 21. We have Lucius or Lucius of Cyrene, who would have been considered also another outsider from Antioch, who had been a black man from Cyrene, which is modern-day Libya, northern Africa. The fourth, fourth person mentioned is, is a tricky name, Manaean. Manaean is an interesting inclusion because he was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, but something happened to this guy. He got saved. Now he's on mission. Now he's in Antioch with this other cast of characters. They're all doing church together. And this guy would have known a ton of great evil. He would have saw a ton of evil because of the hands of Herod. Last but not least, actually we have one more after this, we do have Saul, the formerly zealous Jew who had been saved by the grace of the gospel. Now I take time to highlight these five people to show the diversity of the early church, in particular here in Antioch. These men from different backgrounds, cultures, experiences, ethnic backgrounds, races, are all united in Christ and with a fire in their heart to see the gospel go beyond Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Just go back to Acts 1 verse 8. They're about the business of gospel proclamation. These men, along with everyone else in their local church, have been conscripted to spiritually fight in the Lord's army. We also read of another person present in the church at Antioch. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the most important person present in the Antiochian church. We all go to Paul, right? Because Paul's great. He writes all these letters, does great things, yada, yada, yada. But no, it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the most important person present in this room right now. The church at Antioch obeyed the Holy Spirit. 
But the question I want to answer before jumping to verse 4 and 5 is, what steps did the church take in order to position herself to hear from the Spirit? The church in Antioch was not going to rest in its lures. They, they wanted to take what God had done in their church and see it done in other places. Like, we see what God's doing here. Now, let's go over there and do it. And the Spirit was guiding and directing. And so they took action and sought God for direction. Twice we read, the church was fasting corporately. Like all y'all, fasting corporately. Here's verse 2 and 3. They say, worshiping the Lord and fasting, verse 2. And fasting and praying, verse 3. And trying to discern the will of the Lord for their church, they were worshiping, praying, fasting. A lot can be said for sure about worship, prayer, and fasting, but, but note these two observations. First, these spiritual disciplines were tools of God's grace. Any church, Redemption Hill Church, Crossway, that desires to be healthy and biblically faithful, we're going to incorporate these tools when trying to discern God's will. Same thing with local family units. Like if you're sitting there right now in your own life, like I'm trying to figure out God's will, pray, fast, worship. You see that God meets you. He speaks. Another observation from those two verses is that the entire church came together. Verse 1. While there are certainly elders, leaders in the church, the church consists of many diverse people with varying gifts who come together corporately to discern the will of God. So leaders should certainly be the example. Sean Powers needs to be the example at Redemption Hill Church. But they also invite with clarity and conviction everyone else. Like You're a part of the same gospel mission. So if like you've been sitting on the bench trying to figure out what's your role in the gospel mission here at Crossway, get off the bench and onto the court and into the game. That's where God wants you. So the church corporately comes together and seeks God. And what was the result of corporately seeking God for guidance? We've got Barnabas and Saul. They were set apart and sent as missionaries to Cyprus, the home country of Barnabas, by the way. So if you're familiar with the entire book of Acts, you might know that their journey from Antioch to Cyprus is the start of Paul's first missionary journey, first of three that are recorded. But I want you to see here that Paul, throughout all of, his, all of his journeys, did not go alone. God, the Holy Spirit, was with him. Was with him. The Holy Spirit is sometimes the rarely spoken about, but the irreplaceable person in the room. Now, depending on your context, you might have heard a lot or a little or nothing about the Holy Spirit throughout your life. You grew up Pentecostal, a lot of Holy Spirit. You grew up Catholic like me, Holy Ghost. And you're just trying to figure out how that all works. You know, everyone's context is different. So I don't have a time to go through a theology of the Holy Spirit, but we see why God sent the Holy Spirit for the church, right? Here's John 14, verse 25, 26. When Jesus, in the Gospels here, speaks of the day when the Holy Spirit will fall upon the church in ways where the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit will, will guide the church. He says this, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. And Jesus is like, This isn't always going to be the case. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring your remembrance all that I have said to you. 
So Holy Spirit's like, yeah, hey, after my ascension, guess what? We got Acts 2. We got Pentecost. A purpose of the Holy Spirit is to teach and direct the church. We see in Acts that the Holy Spirit is emphasized several times. Some scholars even think that this particular book should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because of the great emphasis of the movement of the Spirit in the church. Regardless of how one wants to entitle the book, the point remains the sending of the Holy Spirit and His ongoing activity is critical for the church. Even as we consider the battles Christians face, you, Christian, are accompanied by the Spirit who is speaking, calling, sending, and equipping you. Think of it, think of it this way. You do not go into battle without the necessary gear, without the necessary help. You do not show up to a tackle football game without the pads. You know, if, you, if your mind is wandering maybe to Ephesians 6, you would be justified here, right? You've got the armor of God in Ephesians 6. It's all about Christian spiritual warfare. So as the church was worshiping here in Acts and praying and fasting, the Holy Spirit was at work. Let's follow a couple verbs. If you're, if you're an English major, you're going to geek out right now because we're going to look at some verbs. I'm not an English major, so I'm not geeking out. I'm just trying to help. So let's follow these verbs to see what the Spirit was doing as the church was seeking God for direction. Here's verse 2. The Holy Spirit said... Here's your verb. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I've called them. Here's the simple point with profound implications here. The Holy Spirit speaks. He has spoken and he speaks. In particular, he has spoken in the revealed word of God, your Bibles, but the Holy Spirit continues to speak. To drive home my point, think of it like this. No one here would have a problem if verse 2 said, Barnabas and Saul said, right? So why is it easier for us to grasp Barnabas and Paul speaking? Because our naturalistic sensibilities tell us Saul and Barnabas were real people. Therein lies the problem some Christians have when trying to understand the Holy Spirit. He is also a real person who speaks. We have to cross that bridge in our theology. That's why I was, I was always bugged growing up Catholic, calling it the Holy Ghost. <laughs> it's like, what do we do with that? <laughs> but the Holy Spirit is a real person who speaks. The Holy Spirit specifically said, and I think the Spirit is speaking through the church leaders here, Barnabas and Paul were to go west to proclaim the gospel. So the question I want to set before you is this. Do you believe the Holy Spirit continues to speak? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God, the Holy Spirit, speaks to you in prayer through His revealed Word and through others in the church? Like from the prophetic mic earlier. I certainly do. I'm compelled that that's what Scripture's said. So yes, the Holy Spirit never speaks contrary to the character of God or contrary to what is revealed in Holy Scripture. But he does continue to speak in a way demonstrated, I think, in Acts 13. The Bible is clear on this point. You cannot read the entire book of Acts, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Let's say the book of Psalms, the creation account. God spoke the world into existence. 
and not walk away with the conclusion that God the Holy Spirit continues to speak to his people. We also see that the Holy Spirit can specifically, next verb, call people to a specific task. The word call at the end of verse 2 does not mean the same when the Holy Spirit has called or elected a person to salvation. Think, think Ephesians 1, right? Here, call literally means the Holy Spirit has summoned these, these disciples of Jesus Christ to a specific task. The Holy Spirit is like, hey, you two over there, come over here. I have a job I'm going to summon you to. A long time ago, I was in coaching. If you know me, I'm a sports junkie. I love sports, 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 sports all the time. It could be like 11 o'clock. It could be Sisters of St. Mary's taking on Duke University. You know, I'm like, hey, let's watch it. You know, it could be, you know, tri- uh, AAA team, whatever. I love sports. And I coached for a while um, before becoming a pastor. And um, I used to coach basketball. And it's interesting how that dynamic works and how that dynamic should function properly in order to succeed, generally speaking. And there'd be times where you, you got the players in the huddle and you're trying to draw out a play. And what you're hoping for is that what I'm calling them to do is that they will actually do it. Like these players then have a choice to make once they you know, break the huddle and get up back onto the court. Will they, will they trust their coach and the, the things that I've called or will they go it alone? Like that makes the world of a difference when you talk about team dynamics in sports. Here's my point. The Holy Spirit continues to call his church into action even in the face of opposition. The Holy Spirit speaks plays for you to perform. The question is again, are you listening? And are you responding? The Holy Spirit calls the stay-at-home mom to nurture and tell her children about the gospel. The Holy Spirit calls a husband and father to speak and demonstrate the gospel to his wife and kids. The Holy Spirit calls children to obey their parents while at the same time the Spirit can reach a child's heart to open up the gospel to them. The Holy Spirit calls the church to be gospel-centered outposts to the community. So may this church like Antioch, may Redemption Hill Church be, that, be like Antioch for its region. A gospel light to a world full of darkness and lies. And may you, like Antioch, be a church that sends people out to plant more churches, to be missionaries all over this world. Because as we see in our text, the Holy Spirit can call a person to buy a plane ticket to travel to a foreign country, which might result that person being the only gospel witness in that country. Barnabas and Saul did not get onto a plane, but they got onto a boat, all because the Holy Spirit spoke and called them to a task. In light of verse 3 and 4, verse 4 makes logical sense. The Holy Spirit speaks, calls, next verb, sends. I have a couple of thoughts about the sending by the Holy Spirit. The first is a theological thought and a couple practical thoughts. Here's the theological thought. In what other ways do we see sending in the New Testament? Have you ever thought about that? Do you see that at all in the pages of Scripture in particular? Actually, the New and Old Testament. If you already do not know, you might be surprised to see that the God of the Bible is constantly sending. 
He is ascending God. Look at the always familiar, always familiar John three sixteen, and then verse 17. For God so loved the world that he gave, it's an idea of sending there, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send, is that word again, his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. There's ascending there. God's covenant of redemption here is about God the Father sending God the Son into the world on a rescue mission. So whatever and wherever God sends you, you go with confidence knowing God sent the Son before you. Jesus was sent into the world on mission to fight against evil, to expose the sin of our heart, to fight for the oppressed, and offer a way to be reconciled to God through his atoning death and resurrection. We serve a God who is on mission, who is sending. If by faith you believe in what the sending of the Son accomplished, you are also called to be sent by God to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Christ was sent to tell others about the truth of the gospel. Likewise, you are sent by God to tell others the same truth. So what Jesus did... (laughs) And what Jesus preached, you're to preach. Think of how staggering that is. How awesome that is. I won't repeat the same passage I shared from John 14, but remember the Holy Spirit has also been sent into the world to guide the church as she is sent into the world to tell others about Jesus. The Father sent the Son, the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit, and God sends the church accompanied and empowered by the Holy Spirit. All of this sending is revealing a pattern. It's a pattern in Scripture we would do well to embrace. Now, here's some practical thoughts about the sending of Barnabas and Saul. They were sent without knowing what lies ahead. You ever thought about that? Like before GPS, before you had your cell phone, you could pull up Google Maps and be like, where are we going, honey? We're going there. How long is it going to take? Ten minutes. Not the way you drive. We'll be there in five if I'm driving. That's, that wasn't there, right? They were, they were sent without knowing what lies ahead. All they knew is they were going on a boat and they were hoping the captain could read the stars. Verses 4 to 12 of our passage was not on their radar when they were sent out from the church in Antioch. Their situation reminds me of the calling and the sending of, of Abraham in, in the Old Testament. Genesis 12. Here's part of, part of Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred, like leave your family. Some of them went, but he's leaving some behind. And your father's house to the land that I will show you. So Abram went <laughs> as the Lord had told him. Listen, there might be some of you out here right now that God is calling you to go somewhere. It could be buying a plane ticket. Maybe you're coming to Iowa with me, you know? I could tell you the best way there. I'm just kidding. But, but, it, but it could be to your coworker. The person sitting right next to you at the office. Abram, Abraham had no idea what he would encounter when he traveled to a land filled with people he did not know. He simply obeyed God. Barnabas and Saul had no idea what they were to encounter. They simply obeyed God. Abraham's call and his response to God are familiar for many church planners, frankly. 
In my situation, like, God was calling me back to the motherland, Iowa, you know, away 16 years, and we're going home. But for my wife, Sharice, honey, I'm called to plant a church in Iowa. No. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to Iowa. Everyone in Minnesota makes fun of Iowa. Like, and then for people like the Wetzel family, the Andersons, the Canes, the Danielsons, a single guy named Brooks, they all left their jobs, school, friends in the Twin Cities to follow the call and to be sent by the Holy Spirit. They all packed up their stuff and drove four hours south on Interstate 35 until they hit the road sign that said Des Moines. I mean, those people have my gratitude. But more than my gratitude, it's been a joy to see all these folks walk in faith. For many, I'm sure Iowa seemed like a foreign land. And to the point we read in our passage, their actions are a demonstration of faith and obedience. They heard the call, then they opened their heart to be willing to be sent. Churches form because of the joyful and radical obedience that people have toward the call of God in their lives. Christians do crazy things for Jesus that is unfathomable to the world. None of us knew what to expect in this foreign land, and that is to say Iowa. But what I do know is that they honored God with their faith and obedience to the call to be sent. Here's a second practical thought from Acts 13.4. The speaking, calling, and sending by the Holy Spirit is done in cooperation with local churches. In collaboration with the Holy Spirit, Redemption Hill Church was sent out by another church in, in the Twin Cities. And when everything is considered in Acts, I think this is a preferred way to plant churches or send people to unreached people groups throughout the world. It comes through your local church. The church guided by the Holy Spirit is the launch pad for gospel mission. Verses 1 to 4 show us a beautiful diversity in the local church and the beautiful partnership between God's local church and the Spirit. As the church sought God through worship, prayer, and fasting, the people responded. Here's another reality in play. As you walk in faith and obedience to God, there's going to be persecution. You are confronted with spiritual warfare. What is it that Barnabas and Saul did not foresee when they arrived in the island of Cyprus? What kind of events did their conscription into God's army result in? They encountered two individuals we read in our text. The first is this man named Bar-Jesus, who's also called Elymas. The second is Sergius Paulus. Bar-Jesus is this magician, and Sergius was like a government official, proconsul. Sergius had heard about Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear for himself what they had to say, since they wanted to hear the gospel. And you know, Paul, he's going to tell him the gospel. But his friend, and the friend of Bar-Jesus, did not want Sergius or anyone else on the pro-council to come to faith. Why? This is where the opposition comes in. Bar-Jesus wanted the men in authority to listen to him. Saul sees right through Bar-Jesus and calls him out. Here are verses 9 and 10, which highlight the conflict. But Saul, who was called Paul, Here's another verb for you English folks. Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? It's worth pointing out, it's worth noting that the Holy Spirit not only speaks, calls, and sends, but he fills or, or supplies everything Paul and Barnabas needs for the gospel mission. I'll even add this audacious statement, which I don't think is audacious, 
in the context of what we've already seen. The interaction in this passage is not possible without the Holy Spirit. Saul, who is now referred to by his Roman name Paul, verse 9, lays down the wood because Bar-Jesus was trying to prevent the people from hearing the gospel. Paul calls Bar-Jesus son of the devil, which is clever because the meaning of Bar-Jesus is son of salvation. Paul corrects his lie. He goes after him. He is saying, you, Bar-Jesus, are doing the opposite of salvation. Anyone opposing the gracious gracious gift of salvation from the Lord is a son of the devil. The way Paul, but really God, responds to Bar-Jesus is that he causes blindness. Uh, Bar-Jesus experienced the just hand of God. The blindness of Bar-Jesus was not permanent, we read. I don't don't know why, but one would hope that this self-proclaimed son of salvation turned to the only one who could offer salvation through Jesus Christ. I hope that his suffering from blindness allowed him to see the mercy and grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The the interaction between Paul and Bar-Jesus, I think, is really interesting. Here's why. Being called the son of the devil would have been seen as a necessary and extreme statement. Necessary and perhaps extreme. At the same time, we read throughout the New Testament, we are to love our enemies. Like, I got into this passage, I started reconciling that. How does that work? How do we reconcile these seemingly opposite reactions to persecution? In my opinion, how a Christian fights against evil is sometimes a matter of context. Here's what I mean. In our culture, active opposition to the gospel takes many forms. It'd be easy to create a list of areas where there's active opposition to the message of Christ. I have books in my shelf that lambast Christ and the gospel. I know many people who oppose Christianity and want to bring other people with them. So there are times when a strong word is certainly appropriate. What Bar-Jesus was doing was no different than the Pharisees. These leaders were leading others away from God, right? Go to the Gospels. And we know from the Gospels, Jesus had many strong and corrective words for the Pharisees. But I also think that many people are not actively preventing other people from following Christ. Therefore, I believe there's a different reaction to those we perceive to be an enemy, however you want to define enemy. What's that reaction? Well, you can't help but think of the commandment to love. I think the majority of our reactions to people who do not know Christ is with the love of God. Instead of saying, you're the son of the devil, the devil you should be thinking, you are an image bearer of God. So listen, I do not dismiss Paul's reaction to bar Jesus. I do not overlook the responses of Jesus against religious hypocrites. Members of Redemption Hill Church have certainly heard many comments from me about false teachers. Anyone actively opposing the message of Christ and influencing others away from Christ need a direct and strong word. So yeah, Sean Powers has a strong word for prosperity preachers. Certainly, they're leading people away from God. Do I have a strong word against liberal Christianity that is attempting to break down the foundations of orthodox and biblical Christianity? Yep, you better believe it. Do I have a lot of strong words for the wokeism going on right now that's creeping its way into the church? Uh Uh-huh. I got a lot to say. We'd be here all day if we got to go down that road. Is the devil trying to use false teachers to oppose the gospel and keep my non-Christian friends at the gym from hearing the gospel? Certainly. If you were to read Acts cover to cover, what you end up seeing is that being sent by God 
assumes persecution. It assumes also that Christians need to respond. Being sent by God assumes resistance. But here's the point I want to make about the Christian battle against evil. This passage does, and every story in Acts really, does not cultivate a victim mentality when the world comes after Christians. Let me say it again. This does not cultivate a victim mentality when there's persecution. Paul never played the victim card. Never. Even when he was in prison or stoned, he always considered it an honor to be persecuted for Christ. He's like, this is an honor. Bring on the other stone. Throw it. I'm doing this for Jesus. He played the exact opposite card from being a victim. He played the victory card. I heard that amen. And I just thought of that this morning, so good for me. But it's true. He played the victory card. Because of what Christ has done through his atoning death and resurrection, there is victory for Christians in this hostile world. There's no woe is me for Christians because Christ has won. And Christians will see with finality the triumph of Christ when he comes back at his second advent. Until then, until Jesus comes back, we are all sent out by God to proclaim the word of God, verse 5 of today's passage, because God has ordained some to seek out God's word, verse 7. And when a bar Jesus comes into your life, you seek God for help as to how to respond, and you pray to God for his or her soul. Because you will, if you are active in your faith, I mean, if you're inactive, that's different, but if you are active in your faith, you will experience some type of opposition. That's a guarantee. Put the stamp on the envelope, send it out. You will experience that. Loving a broken and hostile world does not mean you cease to teach and preach truth. You do not need to give up your Christian principles by loving a broken and hostile world. The love of God is actually the primary weapon you have in your hand that the Holy Spirit uses to lead others to Christ. Even when the love of Christ compels you, guided by the Holy Spirit, to speak hard truths with love. Winning a war in the Lord's army does not involve guns or bombs. When missionaries are sent out to a people in a culture that does not know the gospel, love is what can open their hearts to Christ. To be a soldier in the Lord's army is submission to the will of the Holy Spirit as he leads and guides you to proclaim the truth of God's saving love to this hostile and broken world. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.